Well, good day to you all. It is a very beautiful day. <laughs> they all are. So, uh, any questions? Uh, anyone? Any question? a lot of people mentioned that Sedona has very high uh, the, uh, the vortex, you know, in Sedona. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, not, not only the lay person say that, but also a lot of the, uh, the monk and, and all those spiritual practice the person, mm-hmm. they mentioned about the vortex is so strong. But however, when I went to Sedona, how come I, I couldn't feel any the strong energy at all? It's because uh, uh, I'm, my practice not, not get to the level enough to, to, to sense that vortex or, or my sense is not sensitive enough to feel the uh, vortex. And I also want to know how's your opinion regarding to uh, the vortex, you know, uh, uh, maybe it's quite just your opinion regarding to uh, the vortex. And I also have a question. You choose Arizona to be your residency and practice uh, in that Arizona. Uh, uh, I just curious is that because of vortex? Or, but maybe I, I don't think that way, but, but I'm still curious to ask. Okay, well, so the question of vortexes, in general, it's a, a, kind, a kind of experience that there's not an explanation for based on our ordinary ways of seeing and understanding things. It has, there's not any known physical cause for why some people feel uh, certain kinds of energy in certain places. And not everyone does. And uh, some people go to Sedona and they go to these places. Uh, People actually make money taking you to these places where the vortex is very strong. (laughs) And they go there and say, I don't feel anything at all. You don't feel anything at all? Some people say, a lot of people they do, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that say, oh, wow, the vortex is so strong, and so, you know, it's amazing, I've never had any experience like this. And there'll be somebody else on the same jeep trip that says, yeah, I don't feel anything at all, this is all your imagination. 
you heard about it from somebody else and it's your, your fantasy and uh, so some people experience it and, and, and some people don't and uh, there probably is if somebody tells you there's a vortex to be experienced somewhere you're probably more likely to experience one but I don't know that that's a satisfactory explanation because uh, some people, uh, without anybody ever having said something, they experience it and then later on they say, yeah, I had the same experience. So I don't know. There's, there's much more to this world than what we ordinarily, there's much more to uh, everything than we ordinarily think of. We, the view of reality that our mind creates and projects is limited by many different things. And those limitations are different from one person to the other. So, but I believe your first question was, to put it in another way, uh, would be, people say there are vortexes in Sedona, and if I don't feel the vortexes, does that mean that I am deficient in some way by compared to comparison to those other people. And uh, I don't think so. Different, obviously, uh, but perhaps you're feeling what they are, but you're not attributing the same significance to it. Or maybe uh, you uh, are expecting to experience something uh, different, and so you're, you know, it's like maybe in terms of your own subjective experience, you're looking in the wrong place, and it's there, but you're not finding it. Or maybe it's not there, and and you know, so it's really difficult to say. <laughs> so I. If you were to, um, even if even if you were to go back to Sedona and then feel the vortexes there, then you'd probably be wondering, now, am I really feeling them, or is this just because I wanted to and everybody else was? <laughs> so. You know, on the one hand, these things, we're fascinated by them because uh, they suggest that there is, is more to uh, more to experience than the, what we ordinary, the ordinary mundane experience that we uh, are used to. Uh, and, and that's attractive and appealing and exciting and interesting. Um, but it's not... It's not essential. Well, your second question was something about. Um, <laughs> 
Well, and the the second and the third questions are related. Uh, Because, you know, when I go to Sedona, I find it to be a very beautiful place and it makes me feel very good. And I have a sense that there's something very special about it, a special energy about it. Um, the reason that I chose to go to Arizona is I've been, I had been to Arizona many, many times before I moved there from Canada. And I actually had lived there for a long time as a child and always loved it and liked to go back. And one of the reasons I like to go back is I really enjoyed the feeling that I had uh, everywhere in Arizona. Everywhere I went. It just gave me a very very wonderful feeling, made me feel more alive and aware and uh, connected with something uh, that's difficult to say what it was. And the particular place that I live in Arizona has a very, it's, it's uh, like Sedona in that it has very, very strong feel. People always say that, it, that they feel some, that there's something spiritual about that place. And there's a few of you here who have been there, and I don't know, may, you may have had that experience. It's very common for people who go to the place I live to say that it's a very amazing place and that there's a very strong feeling of a special kind of energy there. And I agree, I find that there myself. Um, and I enjoy that. That... Uh, that kind of, of energy and that feeling uh, of, of specialness, uh, it's a good thing to have in a place where you live. It's a good thing to enjoy in a place when you visit. So to enjoy it and appreciate it, uh, to be grateful for it, um, when it's there, my opinion is that's what you should do. Enjoy it, appreciate it, be grateful for it. <laughs> and, and share it with others. But I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't, I don't see any point in making a big deal out of it other than that. It's wonderful that it's there. And there are other places that are supposed to have a very powerful uh, effect. I, I, I've heard of many of them. They're all over the world. The uh, Stonehenge in England is supposed to be like that. So, and I, I honestly, you know, other than to tell you that I know that absolutely everything is interconnected, uh, without exception, and that there is far more. To uh, there's, there's far more to reality than our limited human senses uh, normally acquaint us with. I, I know those with certainty, but beyond that, I have nothing special to say about uh, place energy. You know, and that's what we're talking about: place energy. There's different places that have special energies. Now, my turn for a question. Yeah.
Why do you ask? Everything's empty. That's just the, you know, their their perception and their mind. Yeah. You know, you have your own perception and your mind. As I tell you, there's other people that say, you know, uh, I feel the energies, but I'm afraid to say anything because people think I'm just wacko. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, don't pay no attention to the judgments of others. <laughs> cool to be mean, though. <laughs> <laughs> But the, it's kind of, well, it's not, not relevant. I don't think I should get into it. I'll take it back. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a hotel in Bisbee, a town there where I live, where uh, there's supposed to be three ghosts, and all kinds of people see and hear those ghosts when they go there. Some people go on stages so that they'll you know, stay on the third floor where the, the ghosts are. <laughs> And some people think it's wonderful, and other people go there and they don't see and hear any ghosts, and <laughs> they think it's all totally nonsense. So it makes life fun. <laughs> it's kind of strange that it seems like every time I sit together with my friends in a circle, meditate in a circle, I always have a better sit. And if, if, if it's not a circle, if it's like kind of scattered, mm-hmm. it's, it's always a little bit less. You know, but I, I don't. It's, yeah. But it seems very consistent, right? but it's, once again, it's very, very not relevant. A lot of people find that, that uh, there's a difference sitting by yourself than others, but, you know, if everybody's quiet and you've got your eyes closed, you, you say, well, how could there be a difference? But there is. Mm-hmm. At least there is for many people. So, you... Uh, same answer is what I said, or the same comment as what I said before. There's far more to this uh, world than meets the eye. And we, we don't understand all of it. At the same time, chasing after these things, uh, I mean, they have a value. If you find that you sit better in the company of other people, that's good motivation to find people uh, to sit with on a regular basis, right? It has to be circle. <laughs> Does it have to be... Exactly a circle? Is if somebody sitting six inches too far back or six inches too far in, is it still work? <laughs> what diameter is it? Yeah, it's a special vortex in this country. 
Next question. <laughs> yes. Uh, question about like, walking meditation. Uh, if I close the eyes, the, of course the concentration will be better. So I can focus the uh, sensation. Mm-hmm. But uh, I need to pay attention to the uh, direction and the surface of the road. Uh, but if I, if I look at my feet, I, I don't think it's a good way because. Uh, uh, our mind is kind of passive, just just follow the steps. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but if I open our eyes and look in the front, there's more a lot of distraction. There. Yeah. So, what's the best way to do that? I <clears throat> every one of those ways is a good way to do it because in some you have less distraction, in some you more, and you have some, in some you have different kinds of distraction. So. It gives you different degrees and different opportunities to practice directing and sustaining your attention, focusing your awareness, and managing being simultaneously aware of several different things at once. So it's not that there is one way that's better, but that that they all provide different opportunities for training. Good question. Um, I wanted to introduce you to a third way of doing the walking meditation practice today. And it's best to do this when, uh, you know, you've already been practicing for several days and your mind's pretty steady and uh, stable. Uh, Because otherwise it can quickly just lead to your mind drifting off into its ordinary kind of mind-wandering activities. But you're used to walking slowly, <clears throat> either medium speed like the first meditation I gave you, or very slow like the one I gave you two days ago. And what I'm sure that you've noticed that when you're walking slowly, and it's very deliberately, and that part of that conscious part of your mind is is pretty much in control. You know, you're walking very slowly paying attention to all the different sensations, that if you're distracted, you start to lose your balance. Right? Find that. So, it takes, when you're walking slowly, it's a very unnatural way to walk. And it requires a lot of continuous attention. And, of course, the good side about it is if you notice you're starting to lose your balance, it makes you aware that your mind is starting to, that your attention is starting to waver in some way. Yeah? Sometimes the, the surface makes a difference. The surface makes a difference, too. Yeah, but it's, it's rock, if it's a bump, bump, mm-hmm. bumping, so... It's That's right, yes. So the surface makes a difference. And so when you're walking outside, especially... You know, if you're walking inside, you could walk very slowly and, and still become pretty absent-minded. But outside, where there's you know different slope, or there's a rock there, or things like that, it's pretty pretty. <clears throat> but on the other hand, when you normally walk, uh, you know that uh, it happens quite automatically. And so this third way of practicing is to walk in a more natural way, <clears throat> in a more automatic way. 
still not really fast, but an automatic way of walking. And this time, be try to get in the place of being the visitor in your body, the observer. You landed, and you're watching. You're just watching what's happening. You're watching the body uh, and the mind interact. Well, what this is really about is discovering something more about what is body and what is mind and what's the difference and what is uh, what is deliberate and conscious and intentional and what is not or put in another way discovering how much do you project an I or a self into your ordinary activities that is really an illusion So anyway, if you walk more normally, but you're paying attention to everything that's happening, you'll see that, well, first of all, there's no problem with balance at all. And you'll see some of your, your body, hey, look, I walked around that low spot on the ground. I didn't even realize that I was going to do that. Right? And you start to notice, you start to notice the way your eyes move, you know, looking at different things, looking ahead, and and looking over there. And you're watching. Wow, look how those eyes are moving. I didn't decide to look over there. My eyes just went over there. Well, they were attracted to that flower pot on the ground, or whatever it is. So you're just the observer. And you're starting to notice that a lot of the things that you would ordinarily take credit for as an I and a self, you know, I decided to walk around that spot. I decided to talk, stop and turn around. Well, did you really? So you can start to to make those kinds of discrimination. I start to see that you go through your life, a lot of it is on automatic pilot. The difference is when you walk slow, where you were fully aware but you were, everything's going slowly, and you're very focused on one particular thing. When you're walking like this, now you've got to stay in the present. Right? What you discover is there's so much going on in the present. Maybe you've already found that. The present moment is so jam-packed full with so many things, and you, you, uh, it's, it's amazing that you would be able to depart the present to go into the past or the future anyway with so much going on. But we do all the time. But <laughs> <laughs> somehow like Tai Chi or, or Qigong, because we do it extremely slowly, and the mindfulness that needs to be applied is, is very similar. So walking, that's there, you know, like this principle can be applied to anything. Yes, it, it, it can be applied in a lot of ways. And, you know, uh, yoga practices done properly are that way. You do them slowly with complete mindfulness of every part of, of the movement. But uh, what this is practiced for doing is being, being mindful uh, when you're out in the world and, and being active, being aware of what's going on. 
in the process of this, uh, your main focus is going to be just observing your body and what it, do- what it does. But it's not just the body, it's also the mind. And what you're going to notice is that, that there is no sharp line between what's the body and what's the mind. You know, so it seems like the body's walking by itself. And it, it seems like there are mental processes taking place, but they're obviously not the kinds of conscious deliberation. You know, like I say, you didn't decide to change direction and walk around something, but you watched it happen. So there was some kind of a mind that took in the information and uh, processed it and made a decision and acted on it. Yeah? So, should we also observe the surroundings? Yes. What you, but observe the surroundings in this way. Watch how the observation of the surroundings takes place. Watch how your attention is drawn to one thing or another. Yeah. So it sounds like it's just too messy mind. I'm messing with our awareness to to the to body and mind and surroundings. But it will be overwhelmed by this uh, kind of uh, observation and we our mind just uh, lost. It's too much information. Too much information. Well, yeah, and that you'll you'll find some of that at some point that is that it's too much information. But uh, all you have to do is just let go of that feeling and just be in that place of the of the observer, primarily of your body. Right? Uh, and you'll notice things like uh, you become aware of the movements of your eyes, and then if you start getting caught up in the content of the seeing, then you start to feel overwhelmed by the information. But if you just back off again to uh, watching the activity of the eyes in a sort of objective way, that the eyes are, how they're moving, what they, they fix on one kind of thing and then another kind of thing. If your eyes fix on something and then your conscious awareness starts to get lost in the processing of what it's fixed on, you know, uh, and then at the same time you're hearing things and you're still feeling things, you're feeling the sensations in your legs and your muscles as you walk and after a while it gets overwhelming, yes, but I'm suggesting that you always maintain that sort of step back, let it take care of itself. Your eyes themselves will decide what to look at and when to look away and your body will keep on walking so just observe the nature of what it means to be you. So it's kind of a, a less observer to observe yourself mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. response to the surroundings. Yeah. Yes. You're observing yourself. You're observing that which you are used to attaching the label of self to, and that which you're used to like I say, taking all this credit for, I decided to do this, I did that. I, 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 I. But you're stepping back and realizing that a lot of that is just made up. Now, 
already what you're probably realizing is that in terms of what something that you what the, the, that which you're used to attaching the label I to that actually does something uh, what it really can do is it can direct the attention and you're doing a lot of that you can consciously volitionally deliberately direct the attention and that direction of attention comes out of intention and uh, other kinds of things that you do also flow out of intention so really what you what this thing that you call I is mostly all about is determining at times volitionally what you pay attention to but not all the time because of course you see your attention is going all over the place by itself I can direct my attention but when I don't direct and sustain my attention my attention moves by itself and things move in and out of my attention. But in terms of what I as the doer can do, this is one of the things that I as the doer can do is direct my attention. The other thing that I as a doer can do is to generate intentions about how I would like things to be or what I would like to happen in the next moment. But not all of your intentions, what you'll notice, or not all of my intentions are being determined in the present moment. Sometimes they are. But a lot of the time, obviously, when an action takes place, there's an intention behind it. And you might even notice the intention arising that precedes the action. But you will notice there is not ahead of the intention arising some period where you made a decision and generated that intention. Where did it come from? Where did it arise from? Where did the intention come from to walk around the low spot of the ground? It didn't come from nowhere. It came, it was a result of previous occurrences where you had more consciously and deliberately generated an intention which left an imprint, a kind of program. And so you've learned to walk. You've learned to walk efficiently and effectively. You've, you've learned so that you can, without intentionally and consciously thinking about it, choose some kind of obstacles that you go around and some kind of obstacles that you ignore. And the result is a very efficient way of walking. So it is coming out of intention, but it's not coming out of intention in the present. But in the course of walking like this, you're going to come across those instances where there is some kind of a choice or decision being made. There is some variety of alternatives. And so the intention that arises is arrived at in the present moment. It's not an automatic one that's coming out of some past actions. So... This is, this is a practice of discovering a lot about, I mean, who am I? I am the experiencer and I am the doer. 
So this is learning something about the true nature of I the experiencer and I the doer, and the relationship between I the experiencer and doer, and I the mind, my mind, and I the body. Could I say the way you teach us mm-hmm. is not a practice for walking meditation. It's a developable mindfulness. Yes, right. It's a development. It is, it is using walking meditation to develop mindfulness. And I should say when you're doing this, I, you, would, you would like to have this kind of mindfulness more and more of the time, all of the time. But when you first start doing this, what you need to be on the watch, lookout for is you start doing it and it's wonderful, it's amazing, and you're really enjoying it. And then after 10 minutes of it, you find your mind starts slipping into its usual pattern of getting into thinking about this and that and the past and the future and, you know, supper tonight and tomorrow morning and next week and what happened yesterday and how was my meditation and how are you going? When you find that happening, come back and do the other kind of walking for a while. Bring your mind back fully into the present. Get focused, get clear, get present. And then try it again. But now, this is, now you, have, you, you have three different ways of walking to experiment with and try them out for different applications. But this is, this is a way that's developing mindful awareness and it's developing mindful awareness in such a way that is going to lead to to insight. Yes. Is it the same as the momentary concentration, or is it different? Uh, what you're doing is you're taking the concentration that you have developed on a fixed object, and now you're using that concentration in a non-fixed way. And so, yes, it would be called momentary concentration or kainika concentration. That's a, there is a confusion, there is this term momentary concentration, this kind of concentration that's talked about. <clears throat> there is some confusion about that. And so if you uh, have already come across it or if you come across it in the future, please don't make the mistake some people do. Some people say, oh, Momentary concentration, that sounds a lot easier because concentration, concentration on a fixed object is a lot of work and it's hard to do. But concentration, on, but momentary concentration, since it only has to last a moment, that'll be a lot easier. And it, it's not. As a matter of fact, you can't really have momentary concentration until you have already developed reasonably good concentration through practicing with fixed objects. Because it is not the concentration that's momentary, it's the object. And so if you're doing this practice properly, your concentration is constant, your aware, mindful awareness is constant, you're not at any point is your mind drifting or wandering or uh, moving on, on its own. You, and you are fully aware of each thing but you're allowing the object to constantly change and sometimes to, to change it yourself through deliberate intention. So it's the object that's momentary. It's not the concentration. And it's not, and 
easy shortcut way to concentration that avoids having to sit and practice using a fixed object. It's something that you will develop through, uh, 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 through the result of developing some stability of mind and attention. So thanks for bringing that up. Yes. So uh, we often say that bringing the uh, concentration to our daily life is actually kind of very easy to say, but it's, it's requires a lot of effort. It's, it's much easier to say than to do, yes, right. And the, one of the most powerful practices that you can do is, uh, is to practice mindful awareness in your daily life. And in a sense, you could look at all of the formal practice as means that uh, allow you come to come to the place of being able to do that. Because that's where we always get lost. When you're being really mindful and then something comes up and away... <laughs> Away you go, and lostness again. Yes. Why do we need to uh, do do everything slowly? It seems like uh, we can we can practice the mindful awareness without doing things slowly. But you said that by doing it slowly, when we are not very very aware, then we will lose our balance. So it's I guess it's an indication that our mindfulness is not good and we kind of increase the mindfulness. Yeah, well, doing it slowly, losing your balance by walking, when you're walking slowly, is is not the reason that you walk slowly, it's just actually a useful side effect as it helps you to become even more aware when your mind wanders, but, uh, or when your attention drifts. But, the reason for doing things slowly is, well, it's, it's like, any skill, uh, we practice it doing it slowly so that we can do it, we can still be able to do it uh, with that same degree of uh, precision at a higher speed later on. Sounds like the reason why, the same reason why people who do Tai Chi, they do it slowly. They do it for that same reason. I do it slowly so that you can develop a habit of a very high level of mindfulness, after which you can increase the speed. or I think what happens is is, is uh, a natural tendency for the speed to increase, and so if you if you restrain that, then you have the opportunity to develop even greater mindfulness. I see. But it also, you know, uh, you say Tai Chi, but say something like uh, uh, a Kung Fu or, or Karate, where you're going to do it. You ultimately want to do it very, very fast. You practice it doing it slowly to perfect it, so then you can do it very quickly. Right. Yeah. right. I see. Thank you. So, yeah. can a singer or piano player this thing can practice? Sorry, I'm having trouble. Like a singer. Hmm? Like a singer. A singer? Uh huh. For piano player. Yeah, it's the same principle, yeah. You, you do it slowly and you do it by small parts and then you speed it up and you add all the parts together and then you've got a, a, a perfect whole. Yeah. So. Okay, what other questions do we have here? Yes? Uh, again, the walking meditation. 
I feel that um, it's hard for me to, if, if I'm doing the, the nine steps of the, uh, walking, it's, it's hard to uh, observe the sensation mm-hmm. yet. Is it uh, better to um, just pay attention then to the different stages of the movie? And later on, if we're familiar with the movie, um, then we can focus on the sensation. Um, y- yes, you, you're saying in, in, in the nine parts of, yeah. of stepping and slow walking. <clears throat> the, yeah, you might spend just a little while clearly identifying each of those nine parts and then start adding in the awareness of the specific sensations that occur. Yes, that's a very good way to approach it. And this is something, you know, that... Uh, uh, it, it's not that you perfect the practice in three or four days of doing it or a week of doing it. it you keep on uh, perfecting it. And the other thing, too, is that with that particular practice, and you talked about doing things slowly versus quickly, when you can recognize over and over again every time you take a step uh, three or four different sensations in all nine stages of, of moving then you can start moving a little bit faster and see if you can still, if your mind is sharp enough and quick enough and focused enough that you can still identify all of those sensations that occur. So. And Sophia yesterday mentioned that uh, there's another way practices. In the beginning, it's, it's very fast. And later on, they slow down, slow down, slow down. Maybe there's also uh, uh, advantages on that practice. Well, <clears throat> yeah, I'm not sure exactly what the details of that practice are. But sometimes when people are just learning to do walking meditation for the first time, I'll just tell them, let's go out and walk reasonably slowly, and I won't even tell them to bother paying attention to the, so- atten- uh, the sensations in the soles of their feet, but just to practice staying in the present. Uh, and whenever they find, you know, it doesn't matter what they're paying attention to as long as it's something that is actually happening in the immediate present. Just to give them a chance to start slowing down, calming down, getting used to that idea and uh, and getting over, getting caught up in, in thinking and then introduce them to these, you know, slowing down and walking with more awareness. So, uh, it may be that uh, the practice that she was referring to or that other people teach her are, are basically doing something like that. Uh, yeah, it's called being in the present moment and it's a very easy way to introduce somebody to the general idea of what meditation is about. Stopping the process of getting lost in discursive thinking and then the next step in that is to try being in the present moment silently because the easiest way to stay in the present moment, and most people will naturally tend to do it, is they'll start talking to themselves about everything that they're seeing and feeling and so on and so forth. And that gets that part of their mind, that, uh, that discursive part of their mind engaged in being in the present moment. It's very good and it's very effective. And once they've learned to do that, then the next stage in the practice is 
be in the present moment silently. See if you can let go of all that chattering and just be. So, and these these are also good ways to do walking meditation. Some people just said if we cannot do it very slowly, we need to just pay attention to the left and right. Just yes. That's right. That's another way of doing the walking meditation is just noting. Uh, usually that's a part of a noting practice. <clears throat> and you start out noting left, right, or st- sometimes just stepping, 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 and then left, right, left, right. Uh, you know, and, and then gradually move into lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing, and so forth. So, now this is good. We've talked about a number of different ways of doing walking meditation, which is an opportunity to see that they're not, they seem more different than they really are, right? They're all just different ways of approaching the same thing. Ultimately, what it's all about is uh, directed and sustained attention and mindful awareness, and using those to, to uh, as practices to cultivate uh, those the capacity for those in your mind. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned uh, not not uh, teachers, but uh, you use the noting labeling the uh, the nine um, steps mm-hmm. of the working meditation. I found that as this uh, the alternative is. You can we can enhance our awareness mm-hmm. very efficiently. Yes, we label each part. Right. But uh, after a while, the labeling become at a disadvantage because the the the, the fit is follow the labeling. It's not a youth labeling follow the fit. That's right. Yes. So it's like uh, we are counting the breaths, and mm-hmm. in the beginning it's quite good, and after that the, the breath following you are. Automatically, you know, habitually counting. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, that's uh, you know, these things that are initially helpful in the beginning end up just being awkward and in the way after a while. A verbal noting—it's it's 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 like this gigantic thing to interject into the middle of your awareness. Uh, But you know, in 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 the practice that Mahasi teaches, the noting is used, what it's, what it's doing there is you have your mind on sensation and then it forces you to shift your mind into a different mode of conceptualization. And so your mind is going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it's, it's sort of breaking the continuity of your experience up. And it makes it come very clear that there is sensation and then there is perception, and then there's cessation, and there's perception, and the perception is conceptual. So it's serving a particular purpose in there. But still, at some point, in any of these noting practices, you, you come to a point where you have to get rid of the verbal labels because they're this huge thing that's landing in the middle of a very refined experience. And it just it becomes too awkward, and you have to get rid of it. Because you don't need it anymore as well, too. So, the uh, Mahashi style uh, practitioner, I think, 
Maybe they do in the same way. You know, in the beginning, they used to stay on the skill. Now that they need to give up. Uh, yes, there is a point at which noting gives way to just noticing. But in, if you're doing the Mahasi-style practice properly, even though there's not a verbal label and a noting, there is still the movement of, of the mind from sensation to conceptualization so that you see them very clearly. Because one of the pathways to insight in that method is when you have the experience of seeing each sensation arises and it passes away, and then the mind's knowing of that sensation also arises and passes away. And so you see that not only is sensation impermanent, but the mind itself is the same impermanent series of of, uh, completely transient events. So that's a very important part of that method that the noting and the noticing leads to. So uh, to do that method properly, even though you stop using the labels, you still have to have that distinction between the sensation that arises and the uh, conscious identification of its nature. And as a matter of fact, that's the way the instruction is described, is that as that you notice the nature of that which arises. So in another word, you need to make a very clear um, which is the sensation, which, uh, which is the, your conception. Yes. Yes. Whose method is this? What's that? Whose method? Maha. Oh, this is Mahasi Um uh, He learned it from, uh, uh, I believe, from Ledi Sayadaw, or maybe they both had the same teacher. It was a method that uh, was developed in the forest tradition, the uh, Burmese forest tradition, and uh, in the late 19th century and spread all over the Theravadan countries and became very, very popular. And then uh, in the 60s, when uh, Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield and all these people went to Asia and learned there, uh, it's the method that they brought back. It's what most people think in North America think Vipassana is, is this particular method. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. so. But in, in, uh, vipassana means insight, and actually there's many different methods in all of the different Buddhist traditions for achieving insight. So, yes? Oh, um, I can see that if we do everything slowly, uh, the very obvious obstacle will be uh, impatience, because, because it'll take a lot longer to get things done, and and uh, and of course, you know, uh, the mind always wants more and more. It has infinite amount of desire. So, um, uh, so what are some of the good ways to overcome this impatience? Well, knowing, you know, for for me, knowing the fact that it causes suffering, you know, naturally I let it go. But maybe there are other techniques that, that you like to. That's basically just to recognize impatience. That's just nothing but another mental formation. That's another. It's 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 a distraction, no different than a thought. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of a thought, really. Yes. And uh, 
So you treat it the same way you would any other thought. And, you, and the only time when you're really doing things slowly is in a retreat kind of situation where you don't have anything else to do anyway. I mean, if you're building a house with mindfulness, you wouldn't want to build a house in slow motion. <laughs> Right. I wouldn't want to take up the shower for two hours either. <laughs> That's true. On the, on the retreat, yeah, yeah. You, you have to move with an appropriate, a, a speed that's appropriate. Actually, uh, uh, you'd like to be able to finish your lunch in the uh, hour and a half that's available too for the next sit. <laughs> so yeah, you've got to adjust your speed to to the appropriate circumstances. But... When impatience or restlessness or, or any feeling like that arises, or frustration or disappointment or anything else, it's just another mental formation. It's just another thought. It's another distraction. It's exactly the kind of thing that you're practicing uh, letting go of and ignoring so that you can train the mind to function in a, in a very carefully directed way. Just observe it just the same like everything else. Yeah. And it's a great opportunity because impatience is somewhat subtler than, say, anger. It's, uh, and, and so it takes a little more mindful awareness to keep from making the mistake of saying, oh, I'm impatient, rather than saying, oh, oh there's impatience arising. Ah, hi, impatience. Don't need you. Right. Because, uh, because of that subtlety, and that's the problem that a meditator will have. I'm doing really well, but I, I'm getting impatient. What can I do about being so impatient? Well, you're not impatient. Impatience is just you know another distraction that's arising. Yeah. The problem with uh, observing impatience is once I'm fully aware of impatience, I immediately let it go, so I don't have the chance to observe it very, very long enough. Because naturally, it's like you're holding some the hot hole. You don't want to keep it in your hand for too long. That's right. Well, it's not a problem, because it'll come back often enough that you'll get to observe it as much as it needs to be observed. (laughs) (laughs) And when it doesn't come up anymore, you don't need to observe it anymore. (laughs) Yes? Yeah, you're great today, Jackie. Yeah? This, is, this is really good. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to ask some more questions? Yeah. Venerable Salman, the Vietnam teacher, I think it's 19th century, wrong? Yes. And he taught, in the beginning of the breast meditation, you breast very quickly and in a false way. Yeah. Your comment about this? Yeah, his method is, uh, it's it's interesting. I've never tried it. I read the detailed description of it and my reaction was, I can't believe this really works. (laughs) But it it becomes very painful. People who do have done it, and when they describe it, they say that this deliberate, very forceful breathing becomes extremely painful and, uh, and unpleasant. And part of that practice is just to to deal with the painfulness and unpleasantness of this very unnatural, forceful breathing. I know nothing about it at all, except that um, 
the fact that there uh, is, I think, at least one center where it is still taught and monks come and learn and practice this technique. There may be more, I don't know, but uh, I, I read that there still is, so it, it must work for some people. There's a, there's a center in Hong Kong, I think. Is that, is that where the, it is? That's right, and he was a lay person too. And he developed this method pretty much on his own. He, out of just a couple of very brief instructions that he got from other people that were actually several years apart, he got an instruction and he uh, took his own understanding of that and practiced it, you know, and then uh, he essentially developed this method on his own. But yeah, I, 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 do you, maybe you know more about it than no, I do. I just, my guess was, is it uh, also sometimes in the, uh, like we intentionally uh, postpone, postpone the, uh, the breath, mm-hmm. it can enhance our awareness or concentration by making the faster or making the, the normal breath slower. Mm-hmm. We can actually um, increase the uh, I think these are ways that can function as aids to concentration. I, I, I know one of the Tibetan meditation methods is that you actually hold, uh, hold the inhalation for a very long time and then let it out. And they use this as a means of, of enhancing concentration. Which is very hard for your mind to wander while you're holding your breath. But Like these are all, uh, e- even counting, there's systems of counting, counting uh, 1 to 10 and 10 to 1, and 1 to 9 and 9 to 1, and so all, all kinds of very complicated ways of counting the breath that are offered as ways to help in concentration. My personal sort of feeling about this and sense is that if indeed a person starting out has so much difficulty that they need to make use of some of these techniques, then by all means, it's, I'm glad that they're there and, and they should make use of them. But I think the vast majority of people don't really need these very elaborate and complicated ways of assisting them in the development of their concentration, that they can just through uh, doing the kind of practice that I'm encouraging you to do, that, you know, they're their practice will, uh, they will develop concentration. And even if you use a breathing method or a counting method or some other method as an aid to concentration, at some point, your concentration does need to stand on its own. Yes? You know, I want to share a little bit. Uh, I don't know if it's the same or not. I remember when I was um, doing the... Uh, uh, the yoga class, and one of the instructors uh, showed us the, the ways, fast with breathing, okay? And so fast, and, and they want us to continue at least one minute. Mm-hmm. And my experience is, the end of one minute, I almost died, just feel, <laughs> you know, the, the breath, because so fast, so fast. Mm-hmm. Then, she asked us to hold on breath. Mm-hmm. And then when we hold on breath, the, the, the last one, okay, the whole breath, and I do, can feel the, the, the instructor shaking it. You can feel the stillness. It's so strong, you know, mm-hmm. so 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 quiet and so still mm-hmm. in, in that after that then 
you know, hold on the breath. And that that point is so still. But I didn't practice that as sleep up. But that is a um, meditate. I just feel like this uh, some exercise. But I but, but I do sense that stillness during mm-hmm. that that breath. Well, I'll just point out, even though the bell has rung and, <clears throat> and I'm taking away your lunchtime, I'll point out that your breath, when you deliberately alter your breath, you're actually changing your blood chemistry, and your blood chemistry has a very immediate and direct effect on the functioning of your brain. So a lot of the different changes that you get through altering your breath are simply manipulations of your physiology. When you breathe quickly, uh, first of all, I'll point out to you, if you're a normal, healthy person, no matter how quickly and deeply you breathe, you will not increase the amount of oxygen that's in your blood. Because your red blood cells, you know, if you've ever gone to the doctor and put a thing on your finger and it says your blood is 95% saturated with oxygen, no matter if you breathe pure oxygen uh, rapidly and deeply, the most you go is from 95 to 100% saturation. So you can't add a lot of oxygen to your blood. But what happens when you breathe, when you alter the way you breathe and increase the amount of ventilation, is you eliminate carbon dioxide from your blood. And the carbon dioxide level can become very low. As the carbon dioxide level becomes low, the uh, acidity of your blood changes. And that has an effect on the way that your brain functions. If you breathe rapidly until you remove enough carbon dioxide, it does become uh, unpleasant and painful. And if you keep doing it, you'll start to have uh, you know very strong contractions, convulsive-like contractions in your hands and your feet. Then, if you've removed a lot of carbon dioxide from your blood and you stop breathing, you can hold your breath for a long time. Now, normally what makes you have a breath is that when the car, because normally your blood is very saturated with oxygen, what causes you to breathe in and breathe out is carbon dioxide builds up and that triggers you to take the next breath and get rid of some carbon dioxide. And that's what normally regulates your breathing. If you blow off a lot of carbon dioxide, you can hold your breath for a long, long time. You can hold your breath so long that the blood oxygen level falls far lower than it normally does. And that too has an effect on the functioning of your brain. So a lot of these breathing techniques, they're manipulating your physiology. uh, And that's what's responsible for for the effects. Now, that people may have found ways to use these manipulations and to use these altered states of mind that are the result of manipulating your physiology, that's fine and that's wonderful. I don't, you know, I don't have any comment on, on that except that I personally find no value and utility in it. So. Yeah. It seems like a, a, a just tiny adjustment of the breath can increase a lot, uh, a lot of energy in, in the in the mind. Uh, yeah. Just a tiny little bit of like half a breath. Mm-hmm. If if I just took, take deep nine and half a breath and. I relax the entire That's body, right. and then yeah. the, I feel the, the whole body breathe in, just mm-hmm. even half a breath, the energy level increase tremendously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it seems like um, it's, a, it's a way to 
you know, kind of, because the, a good meditation is a conditional thing. And then, you know, what part of that condition is that we have adequate amount of alertness and energy. That's right. And it seems like I can adjust, you know, like, and sometimes too much energy is not bad either. Uh, yes, that's true. Right. But, uh, and, and you're right, you know, sometimes you, you'll notice that very distinct difference. You take a, a, a deeper breath and it sort of wakes you up. Um, I don't ever find myself, or very, very rarely, if I think about it, find myself deliberately taking a deeper breath. But when I'm sitting and meditating, my breath will become very, very quiet. And every so often, I will take a much deeper breath. But it's not, there's, I, I don't do it deliberately. I just let it happen. I see that it happens. Uh, the, I let the body take care of itself. The body knows how to breathe. It does it all night, every night, without me helping it. And so I trust that it can take care of itself while I'm meditating too. And so, but because I'm focused on my breath, I'll notice whatever changes it makes. But I usually, I, I personally have found no need to uh, manipulate that. Now, if you're finding that you notice that you're starting to slip into dullness, and that taking a deep breath helps to bring you out of it, absolutely do that because that's you know. That is, that is a really good way to help. And that another thing that helps when you just notice that the dullness is subtle and it's there is just to straighten your spine and your neck up. So, and that will wake you up as well. So both of these sort of fall into that same category of, of small things that you can do that are quite helpful. You know, and so just knowing about them, they're just little tricks that you can use when you need them. So it's good to hear all these uh, different methods, but I think I want to concentrate on one method. Yes. So, since I'm first time here, mm-hmm. and I think the main point here is to keep on sensation of your breath, nothing else, no conceptual labeling, because that is a concept labeling. Mm-hmm. So we only fo- focus on your sense. That's right. Object. That's right. Sense. Sense of the object. Mm-hmm. That's right. And that's what I want you to do. I want you to use one practice yeah, and get as much out as you possibly can during this week. But I don't mind act, answering questions about other practices because these questions do arise. You know, is there, what's the difference? Is, is there, uh, what's the best way? Or is there a better way? Or should I be doing it differently? And, uh, and also it, it helps to clarify, well, you know, I overlook to mention, don't note the in and out breath. And because I failed to mention that when I was giving the initial instruction, you spent time noting in and out breath. And then when you told me where, I said, oh, you don't need to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So these questions are good because any little oversights in the instruction, they bring it into the open, they bring it into the light. And we can be clear about it. We're different class and we're talking different things, but. We don't really have an overall pictures. Okay. Just um, for your benefit, uh, the Indian tradition developed pranayama, so it's spelled P R A N A Y M A pranayama, and that's yoga. what the breathing mm-hmm. exercises are creating. Yeah. You're holding the breath and the rapid yeah, type stuff. And you can learn in the yoga studio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, shall we have lunch? All right. Thank you.